Good to be together here at Christ Fellowship. Thanks for having me. It's a real privilege. I've come with my wife, Leanne, and I've brought uh, members from Third Avenue Baptist Church with me. Uh, Greg Gilbert is the pastor there at Third Avenue, and we've been cared so well by him and the congregation. But his whole family showed up to hear me preach while he's preaching in, uh, back in Louisville. So I'm so grateful that, that they're all here, wife and, and parents and son and daughters, sons and daughters. So we're, we're grateful for that. Um, two years ago, Leanne and I moved back uh, to Louisville uh, to make our home there where I pastored from Iraq, where I pastored a church. And as Lance men mentioned before that, we served in Dubai for 16 years. So cumulative total of 20 years in the Middle East. But I grew up in Owensboro, not far from here, even though most of my life, a big chunk of my life has been spent in the Middle East. You know, in the Middle East, nobody, nobody had ever heard of Owensboro. So I was constantly having to explain where I was from. They had heard of Kentucky because of Kentucky Fried Chicken. They, they like that. Say, oh, they, oh, the place where chicken is, you know, fried. No, no. <laughs> so it's nice to be in Bowling Green where there's little explanation required. You know, growing, growing up in Owensboro, <laughs> growing up in Owensboro, was, it was a wonderful place and uh, yet somewhat isolated from the rest of the world. And growing up there as a teenage boy, I, my understanding of the Arab world was limited. I, I had a vague thought that those who lived in the Arab world had oil and were happy to harm Americans. That was kind of my, that was kind of my view of the Middle East. Well, I, travel with me years and years, like 20 years later, uh, I'm directing now as a campus minister. Uh, I worked with campus ministry for decades. I was directing a short-term mission trip to Tunisia in North Africa, a very Muslim uh, uh, country, ground zero for what was the Arab Spring a number of years back. We placed students, Christian students, in Muslim homes. Uh, they were English majors at the University of Tunis, and the idea was we would form friendships and have opportunities to share the gospel in the context of a Muslim home. And the program was wildly successful. Uh, the Muslim students who were English majors at the University of Tunis fought over our students. And we made great friendships, had lots of gospel opportunities with, with the students at the University of Tunis. It was there uh, that we discovered that the Arab view of Americans were similar to the American view of Arabs. They thought Americans wanted oil and um, lived to harm Arabs. <laughs> that, that's, that was their view of Americans. So we, we had this sort of TV world view of each other. It was on that program that I met a student named Hatam. He became a friend. He was a, kind of a practical joker. He was always, he was always had a joke. He was, he was always playing jokes on the students and uh, just a friendly, ha hail, hearty, well-met guy. And he and I sort of developed a sort of a competitive relationship. Who could outdo one another uh, in competition? Well, one day, Hatem took us to the uh, Muslim beach uh, at the, at, off, the, off of Birzeit, a city in Tunis, and we're, we're it's beautiful Mediterranean Sea and this gorgeous sun and a great day. And so Hatem and I were together and I said, come on Hatem, this is you know kind of the competitive thing. Uh, there's a sandbar about 100 yards offshore. I'll race you out there. I, you know, I, I'd been on the middle school swim team. So, so uh, he, Hatem is, no, I must go take a cigarette. So, okay, you go take care of your nicotine fit. I'm gonna swim, I'll meet you out there. He goes, okay. So I start leisurely swimming out there, and then I spy Hatem, who is dove underneath me and is going to try and beat me to the sandbar, and that is not going to happen. So uh, Hatem actually comes up right, uh, he comes up right in front of me, back to me, and this is my moment, you know, so I, I grab him in a perfect chokehold. I mean, it was just perfect. I grab him, I take him down, plunge. I pull him back up, uh, just for good measure. I, he's sputtering, I'm laughing. I take him down again, kaboosh, back up again. I spin him around and 
It's not hot. <laughs> it is a very frightened Tunisian that knows that an American has come to do him harm personally. His eyes are big. I don't know what to say. I'm like, I, I am so sorry. He doesn't speak English. He's backing up like this. You know, he's, he's going back up to the shore. And I'm stupidly following behind him and um, you know, trying to explain what's happened. And it was right then I have this sort of out-of-body experience when I see his extended family gathering on the beach. Some of these guys were buff, <laughs> big guys. And I'm like, my life passes before my eyes. I, I, so I, I wander up. I'm, I'm sort of surrounded by these guys. Now, you know what I need at this point, don't you? <laughs> I need someone who speaks the language. I need someone who can explain what has happened. I need to be reconciled. I meant no harm. <laughs> I need someone that can stand between me and, and, and harm. Guess who walks up? Smoking a cigarette. <laughs> it's Hottam. Hottam, come here. I grab his arm. I explain to Hottam this case of mistaken identity. Hottam thinks this is hilarious. <laughs> Tears are streaming down his face as he's explaining to this family what has happened. And I'm suddenly a friend. <laughs> I'm invited into lunch. <laughs> it's a big tent. I eat harissa and bricks, the, the, the famous Tunisian meals. And uh, I get to know the entire family as a result of me having an ambassador, someone who stood between me and harm's way. The passage I want to look at today is 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. This is best known for ambassadorship. You know what ambassadors do. They speak the language. They speak the truth of a foreign dignitary. They want to have reconciliation. They want people to be spared harm. They want good communication to happen. And that's what our passage is about. Now, this passage is best known for ambassadorship, but it is so much more. So as I read it, notice how gospel-saturated this passage of Scripture is. We start in verse 11. Paul has been building a case, and I'll touch on that here in a second. But let me read from verse 11 through 21. Therefore... Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. As we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, I have four marks of the ambassador I want to talk about. Uh, let me highlight four things. There, there's so much in this passage, we, we can't hit it all. Uh, this morning, but four things. An ambassador's motivation, that's verses 11 through 15. 
Secondly, our understanding of people, verses 16 through 19. Thirdly, our understanding of our role as Christians in verse 20. And fourthly, finally, our understanding of Christ's work in verse 21. That's our outline. So first, our motivation for ambassadorship. Notice Paul is saying what we underst- that we understand what is at stake. That is, we, we fear God. When we, when we understand the fear of the Lord, the judgment is coming. Paul's been building that case before this passage. We persuade people. So we understand who God is and what he's doing and what he's bringing. We, we understand that, and it motivates us. When we fear God, we persuade people in verse 11. That's the role of the ambassador. That's our, our motivation for our role as an ambassador. Our motivation is different, notice, than what people may see. So it's not because we're proud, verse 12. It's not because we're crazy, verse 13. It may, it may look like both. Certainly, Paul is responding to the accusations of both of those things, that he's proud, that he's crazy. But he's not. It's because we know the fear of the Lord. And we've concluded something in verse 14, that Jesus died for everyone who would come to him. And that his death was for their sake in verse 15. You notice I'm just walking through each of these verses. That that conclusion leads us to understand that we don't live for ourselves. So we persuade. We step out of our safe worlds. We speak of Jesus. We don't hide from evangelism. If If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you don't hide from this call to ambassadorship. On the contrary, we are committed and motivated, driven to boldness and seeming craziness because of God's amazing love. Let me, let me say something about being convinced, be, being, being convinced of something. Uh, I was on a flight back from Iraq. The flights, all flights from Iraq are bad <laughs> and long, long. So it, it was so nice to drive here from Louisville and take about an hour and a half to get here rather than the 24-hour uh, you know, trip back from Iraq to, to get here. Um, but it, it led to great opportunities for sharing the gospel. So I sat next to a guy. He's a captive audience. He was from Scotland. He was doing oil and gas work in Iraq. We get into a conversation. He says, what do you do in Iraq? I said, I'm a pastor of a church. He goes, Really? Why would anyone ever do that? You know, like I was crazy. Well, there's a lot of ways I can answer the question. Well, because, you see, I genuinely, really, truly, and genuinely believe this guy, Jesus, rose from the dead. He was like, fair enough. (laughs) Because it's true. We're, We're convinced of his death, burial, and resurrection. We're convinced of that. I think I mentioned this in Sunday school class, but our, our children, one of the reasons when our children share the gospel on occasion with people and, and, or, or they, they talk about how they came to faith, they say that we watched our mom and dad and it looked like they really believed this guy Jesus rose from the dead. That We didn't know, we didn't know that. We didn't know they were thinking that. Sometimes we do look crazy. People thought we were crazy when we banged our for sale sign in the front yard of our house in Lexington, Kentucky to move to Dubai the day after 9-11. They thought we were crazy. I wondered myself. <laughs> There's nobody on the flight over. <laughs> We had what I call poor man's first class. Every, every kid got their own row. You know, we'd all stretch out and sleep. People thought that about Paul in verse 13. But they don't know what we know about Jesus, especially about his love in verse 14. This text is about living for others and not ourselves. In evangelism, we share our faith. Not because it does good things for us. It does do good, good things for you. 
When you share your faith, your, your faith is strengthened, it's emboldened. You get to see amazing things. You take part in, in the work of God. But it's about living for others. This text is about living for others. Let me, let me make a comment about the word all here uh, in verses 14 and 15. All alls don't mean all. <laughs> um, the, the point Paul is making here is not that everyone will come to Jesus. Some people who are universalists take this, this statement and, and say, oh, everyone's going to come to Jesus. That is not what Paul is saying. He, he's saying it's not limited to just the Jews. That, that, that the message of salvation is for all people, all people groups. I, I subscribe to the doctrine of limited atonement. I, I believe that Christ died for the elect. If you don't know what I'm talking about when I say that, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. But if you do, I want to remind you, there is no limited evangelism. There's no limited evangelism. We don't know who the elect are. So we share our faith broadly. But don't miss that it was love that moved Jesus to the cross. It was love that held him there on the cross. And love moves us to share our faith. Bottom line, bottom line, in verses 11 through 15, we're motivated by the fear of the Lord, the conviction of the truth, and the love of Christ. It moves us out in missions and evangelism with crazy boldness and love. That's our motivation as Christian ambassadors. Secondly, this has ramifications about how we view people in verse 16. Let's look at verses 16 through 19. So once we're motivated correctly, Paul says in verse 16, an ambassador's view of people must be Biblical must be right. That's why Paul is taking this on here. We reject sinful views of people, fleshly view, views, worldly, racist understandings of people. We reject that. Now, now this is a natural tendency in, in people. It's why Paul says we even view Jesus from worldly eyes in this, in this passage. So we see that all around us about Jesus, don't we? People, people actually who want to say nice things about Jesus say wrong things about Jesus. He's a great moral teacher. He was just a man. He was a great prophet. We, of course, we see that in the Middle East a lot. He was a great prophet. No, he was divine. He was God incarnate. Anything, anything less curses Christ with faint praise. Paul's point is that if we saw Jesus that way, if we saw Jesus from a worldly perspective, how much more likely to see others through TV lenses, not the eyes of God? Much like my view of the Arab world when I was in Owensburg. A biblical view of people helps us understand there's no such thing, as C.S. Lewis said, as a mere mortal. Every person presented to your, your senses has the mark of the divine, created in the image of God. That's why all people have value and dignity and worth. They have the mark of God on them. So, an ambassador checks the tendency to hate those people we don't like. At the same time, Christians understand all people to be sinners. And, and not just sinners, but without Christ, enemies of God. So ambassadors don't glorify people we admire, knowing every human is fallen and sinful. We're, we're in a broken and fallen world. And, and we feel that, don't we? We feel the brokenness of our world. G.K. Chesterton said that growing up in the world is like growing up on a shipwreck. There's lots of treasures to be found, but there's a, there's a sense that something's deeply wrong. Most importantly, in verse 17, we understand the potential of what divinely created but fallen enemies of God can become new creations in Christ. Verse 17. Forgiven, restored, redeemed creations in Christ. I mean, is there any more joy in life than seeing new life in those around us? 
what joy it is to see monthly people coming to faith in our church at Third Avenue, mostly through the ministry of campus outreach. We see students at UofL coming to the Lord and the joy of hearing their testimonies of how wayward they were and what it means to have discovered the truth of Christ and turn their life over to Jesus and know the joy of God. I never thought my sister Linda would come to Christ. She was very successful uh, in her work. She was a partner at a CPA firm. She had a sports car. She was pretty. One evening, she showed up on my doorstep. She's smoking a cigarette, her arms crossed. Throws it down the ground. Okay, tell me about this Jesus guy. <laughs> come on in, Linda, come on, come on in. Have a seat. I've been watching you. I thought it was a show. After the second divorce, I, uh, I said I was going to get my life together. It's not working out. And I'm just, I'm just so ashamed of my life. Oh, Linda, let me tell you about the one who came to take away your shame. Let me tell you about him. Right there in the living room, my sister came to faith. I never thought it would happen. I didn't believe it. How easy it would have been for me to say, there's just too many obstacles in the way. You know, she'd seen my life. <laughs> she seemed to have everything she needed in some ways. What about you? Do you think about someone that you know who you think will never come to Jesus? Are there people in your life you think are just too sinful, too hard-hearted, too isolated, won't give you a hearing? Perhaps they look like they have everything they need. Maybe, maybe you know non-Christians who, whose lives seem better than yours as a believer. You're tempted to think they don't need, to, need God. Don't believe it for a minute. People of the world around need Jesus because he offers something you can't get from living a good life. It's not just individuals in the world. It's how ambassadors view the whole world. Paul says in verse 19 that God is reconciling the world. It's a global message. Not just, not just parts of the world. The Muslim, the Muslim world claims Jesus is not the Son of God. They do view him, they view him, and they honor him in many ways as prophet. They, I, I would say many Muslims honor Jesus more than many people in the West. Uh, but we see that to deny Jesus as the divine Son of God is to cut the heart out of Christianity. In our home in Dubai, we lived near three mosques. They all went off to calls to prayer five times a day. Uh, and they go at different times. They're not in unison. We would hear the call to prayer five times a day. And it starts with Allah, who's great, has no partners five times a day. It was a constant uh, avalanche of misinformation about Christianity, really. It was a sideways statement against Christians that Jesus was not the Son of God. And at time, honestly, brothers and sisters, I, I, at times, there were times I te was tempted to just despair. How, how, to get the, how to get the message out here? But there are no barriers to God. There are no barriers to God. Paul says God is reconciling the world to himself. And it's happening right now in the world as he chooses. We need, we need to open our eyes to the joy of how our sovereign God is at work in the world. Let me tell you a story of Nestoron. Nestoron 
uh, was a colleague with us in student ministry in Dubai, she and her husband, Yuna. Uh, so she, dear friend uh, and, and colleague in ministry. So I supervised Yuna Nestron for years. She was uh, an Iranian. She had grown up in Tehran. She was 17 years old, a good Muslim girl. She was in the shower and she heard a voice. And the voice said, I'm gonna wash you of your sin. This is a, this is a young woman who's never seen a church, never sung a hymn, never heard a word from the Bible. Maybe knew the name Jesus, but that was it. This started, this, what she heard, started a fantastic journey for Jesus with her husband, Yuna, in ministry. Now, I'm, I'm sure for some of you, this, this story is out of your experience or theology. Uh, it certainly is mine. <laughs> um, but Nestoron took this, this voice and went to her imam in the mosque. And she said, I heard this voice. And the voice said, he was going to wash me of my sin. Who was that? And the imam said, that was Jesus. He's the only prophet who talks that away. And she said, okay, thank you. And she went home. At the same time, her sister, who is in the Netherlands, comes to faith. She's a part of a church there. And one day in this church, a woman comes up to her and says, I don't know what to think about this, but I had a dream last night about you. I never have dreams. I never remember my dreams, but I had a dream about you, and it was very specific. You were sitting on a bed sharing with two women about the gospel of Jesus. I think you're supposed to go home to Tehran. And Nestron's sister said, uh, I, I can't go home. I, I don't have any money. And this woman said, no, you, you don't understand. This was so compelling. I bought your ticket. Nestron's sister, it's a little confusing. Nestron's sister is named Nestorine. Nestorine gets on a plane, goes back to Tehran, knocks on the door. Nestoron and her mother answer the door, two women. They go sit on the bed. She says, Nestorine says, I don't know why I'm here. And Nestorine says, oh, no, we know why you're here. Jesus spoke to me. And um, you're here because you've been in a Christian country, the Netherlands. <laughs> and um, you're going to tell us about him. And so she shares the gospel with Nestorine and, Nest and, and, and her mother, Nestorine's mother, and they come to faith. You should not glorify that experience. This vision started a life of humiliation, deportation, jail for Nestron and her husband, Yuna. For their brave faith, Yuna particularly spent time in Evan Prison, the wicked jail in Iran, where they expected to die. And they would have done that willingly. Just as their pastor, Pastor Hike, was murdered by the secret police. Yuna expected that. Yuna said that the hardest thing he's ever done in life was to watch his wife under interrogation. Yet, he said proudly, she was so brave for the gospel. Yuna spent more time in jail, and when he was released, he told the interrogator, I've told you everything you need to know to become a Christian. And I think you should become a Christian and be forgiven of your sins. And how many sins did this interrogator have? And the fellow hung his head and said, perhaps I will. But I tell this story just to point out, there are no barriers to God. He is the sovereign Lord. He will do as he wills. What about you? Do you see people from other backgrounds, other, other lands, maybe other faith backgrounds and think you can't get to them? 
Maybe you see people from other faith backgrounds and set aside any hope that they might come to Christ. Uh, just, just for free, just by the way. <laughs> Nestrod, I think Nestrod had been watching American Housewives in Dubai. Do you know that show? I've never seen it. I think it's a cruddy show. Anyhow, she was watching that show uh, somehow, and she told us that uh, there's a people group in America I wish I could reach. I just don't know how to get to them. And I said, who's that? She said, American Housewives. And I said, <laughs> I said, I know some. <laughs> you know, I know some. And she said, oh, good. Just hilariously, the secret police actually found out Yuna Nesron were in, in Dubai, and there's no extradition, extradition problems from Iran and UAE, so the secret police were after them in, in Dubai, and so they fled to America. Guess where they moved? Hollywood. <laughs> Hilarious. Nestron lives in Hollywood now with Yuna, where he's pastoring an Iranian church. Anyhow, no barriers to God. Either way, American housewives or a young girl who knew nothing about Christianity. Don't lose heart, Paul says. Don't lose heart. We don't lose heart in verse 18 because God has given us this ministry and there are no barriers to him. Third point, how do we see our role? This is mostly from verse 20. It's, so it's not just our motivation. It's not just how ambassadors view people. Ambassadorship is about how we view ourselves. So Paul says in verse 18, then in 19, and again in 20, that we are Christ's ambassadors. God making his appeal through us. Now, ambassadorship is an image to make sure we understand our role. So ambassadors, by definition, don't live at home. They're from another place, and they live in a foreign place. Now, now it's very tempting in missions conferences at this point to tell you you should all pack up your bags and, and move somewhere to be Christ's ambassadors uh, like we did to the Middle East. But I don't, I don't think that's what Paul is getting at here. This is not a call for everyone to, to become like ambassadors and live another place. I think it, it means we must be very careful uh, we must be very uneasy as we live in this world wherever we are because our ultimate home is in heaven. That's our citizenship, Paul will say, is in heaven. You should be challenged to think about that, to live as resident aliens no matter where you go. Secondly, ambassadors exist. Their very purpose is to deliver a message. So according to Paul, when you sit down with a friend over coffee and a spiritual topic comes up and uh, you begin to share your faith with a friend about Jesus, you represent the foreign power of the kingdom of God. You don't look astonished by that. Let me say that again. You, you should be astonished by that. When you are sharing your faith with someone, Paul says, the Bible says, God says, you represent the foreign power of the kingdom of God, that somehow there is a chain that stretches from the throne of God through you to that person. And that, brothers and sisters, is a great privilege. So you better get the message right. <laughs> you need to know the message. Here, I got four sub-points. I, I, I didn't want to say I, I had eight points to my sermon uh, so this is the way to get in, slip in eight. Sub I have four sub-points about getting the message right. Very quickly, number one, ambassadors don't leave the message undelivered. You know, there's many historical stories of ambassadors who received a message they didn't like and they put it in their sock drawer to great harm. Uh, particularly think of Winston Churchill trying to tell, I think it was the Italians through an ambassador, or the, no, it was the Russians through an ambassador the German was going to, Germany was going to attack. The ambassador didn't want to deliver this message, and so he, he hid the message to harm, to great harm. Listen. Slay your fears of evangelism. Deliver the message. Secondly, 
ambassadors are not at liberty to change the message. We can't nice up the message. We deliver it as given. And some of the hardest things to say is to tell people they're sinners and that they need to repent and that they're going to go to hell. You know, I, uh, it seems like there's Christians that want to air condition hell, not talk about it, air condition it, make it nicer than it's... No! That's why we persuade people. We don't manipulate. We persuade people. Because, because the message is desperate. Thirdly, we should shout out the message like Paul does to the world. So when Paul, when, when Paul says in verse 20, look at verse 20, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He is, he is, it, it looks like he's talking to the, to the Corinthians, but the Corinthians were Christians. He makes that very clear in chapter 1. They're believers. No, he's just shouting out the message. He's demonstrating the message. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God in verse 20. We shout out that message to the world because we're connected to Jesus, because the gospel should flow out of us, as we've said. Fourthly, we don't graduate from the message. We, I've made, I've, I'm the best example I know of what to do wrong, so let me tell you. How, how I did this wrong. You know, a lot of people think that the gospel is kind of what gets us saved, ABCs of the Christian life, and then we move on to other things like Christian leadership or raising our children and having happy marriages or how to get ahead in business or whatever, you know. So Christian principles for all those things. No, we, the gospel is the hub of our life. Um, so let me tell you how I got that wrong. So I'm, I'm, in, I'm in Dubai. I'm setting up student ministry. And we had some rough years. First seven years were rough, and the last seven years were very fruitful, exact opposite of Joseph's experience in Egypt, right? So fat years uh, later. So students are starting to come to Christ. We're sharing the gospel. People are coming to the Lord. And uh, I'm, I'm like, we need leadership. We need Christian leadership. And so I set up a leadership program. I've done this all my life with students, a Christian leadership program. We're, we're taking 13 of our best students. We bring them into our home. We have leadership principles uh, for, for I, I think we were doing it seven weeks. I made everyone promise to come to seven weeks. First time, we're sitting there, and there on the corner on the front row was a kill. And I, I, I asked Nissen to come up. He's one of our student leaders. Nissen, a kill's here. Well, yeah, he, he, he wanted to come. He thought it looked good on his resume to have some leadership principles down. I said, no, no, Akil's a Hindu. How's he going to lead a Bible study? <laughs> you know, no, he, he can't come. Tell him he can't come. And Nissen was like, okay. Now, that was not going to, I could tell. Nissen was not going to tell him that. Akil turned out to be actually one of our most faithful members. He, keeps, he comes every week. I did not understand or know. There was this cute little Indian girl named Shivnita, and uh, he was interested in her. I, did, I just missed that. Anyhow, uh, at one point, uh, there, well, Akil and Anita, uh, Shivnita got married eventually. But anyhow, so uh, I, I, I'm, I'm maybe like third or fourth time he's come to the week. Akil, I, look, there's something I need to talk to you about. Oh, there's something I need to talk to you about too. I said, you go first. He goes, I've become a Christian. I said, how'd that happen? <laughs> And uh, he goes, well, I, you know, I, I love your leadership principles, but you know what the students are talking about and what they're excited about is the gospel. And I realized I needed to repent of my sin and put my complete tr trust and faith in Jesus, and I did last week. And I said, oh. And he said, what do you want to talk to me about? And I said, nothing, never mind, <laughs> never mind. Because, see, I'd, I'd missed that the gospel is, <laughs> it has a lot to do with leadership. And I, I was just, I was missing it in Akil's life. I made the classic mistake that the gospel is what brings us to Jesus so that we graduate from the gospel. Don't do that. Hey, listen, listen. Some of, some of you today listening to me in a, in a group this large, you may not know about this reconciliation with God that Paul shouts out. Maybe, maybe like a kill, you're just, you're just listening in. Let me, let me talk to you for just a second. Um, this message is for you. It's for you, too. First, see yourself through God's eyes, that you are divinely created. You have infinite worth, and yet you're cut off from God because of your sin and your rebellion. But understand your potential, too, that you can be reconciled to a loving God, our Father, who sent his Son to pay the penalty for your sins on the cross so that you might be 
forgiven of sin. That is, you might be forgiven of that which separates you from the joy of living with God. You're not required to earn your way to God or into his favor, but just to merely turn from sin and put your complete faith and trust in him, just like Akil said. That's, that's the message I shout out. I, I want to be like Paul. Be reconciled to God because you can be. You can be. Last point, point number four. Our understanding of God's work in the message of the gospel, verse 21. So it's not just why we're motivated. It's not just how we view people in the world. It's not just having an understanding of our role as ambassadors. We must have a clear understanding of what God has done. We must know the gospel inside and out. And so not just God, man, Christ response, which is our starting point, our baseline, but also what the gospel is not. We need to understand the distinctions. And Paul's helping us with that in verse 21. For our sake, this bears repeating, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, in theological, in theological realms, much ink has been spilled on verse 21 because it's about two major central theological ideas that, that theologians love to argue about. And I'm, I'm going to tell you big seminary words here. It's, it's great. Impress your friends with this. It's about imputed righteousness and substitutionary atonement. Two things, two theological concepts. All in uh, succinct 24 words, Paul says this. They're big words, but they're good words to understand because this is the heart of the gospel message. It's a behind-the-scenes look at what God did on the cross. And if you can't understand these two words and what they're about, you, you can't really understand the Christian faith. You've you got to nail this down. Um, you, you don't have to use big words. I like to use big words because I didn't go to seminary, and it, make, you know, it makes up for it. So, but you need to understand the big concepts here. Imputed righteousness means a righteousness that doesn't come from inside of you. It's, it's given to you, righteousness that's given. In other words, our righteousness, contrary contrary to all the other religions in the world comes from God. It comes to us from God. It's not self-righteousness, but God-given righteousness, where in his great love, God took the sins of all who would repent and believe and put them on his perfect, sinless son that God might forgive us. Paul says Jesus became sin. Sin was imputed into Jesus. Jesus referred to this as drinking the wrath of God. And then God takes all who will repent and believe in Jesus and imputes into them Christ's righteousness so that he declares us forgiven and righteous when we stand before him, not self-righteously. Listen, have you ever heard of someone talking about when they stand before God, they're going to tell them all the thing, good things they've done or maybe all the things they didn't do that are really bad, but other people do? That's self-righteous, but... You know what? Nobody likes self-righteous people. I don't, I don't even like it when I see it in myself. I, I hate self-righteousness in me. And let me tell you, God hates the self-righteous. We want to be Christ-righteous. We want to have his righteousness so that when we stand before Christ, we stand before him clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. That's imputed righteousness. I love John MacArthur's summary statement of the meaning here in verse 21. Uh, let me read it for you. On the cross, God treated Christ as if he had committed all the sins of every sinner who would ever believe so that he could treat every believer as if they had lived Christ's perfect life. That's imputed righteousness. Let me, let me explain substitutionary atonement. Just, just as imputed righteousness is a righteousness that comes from outside of us and goes into a substitutionary atonement, comes from outside of ourselves too. To atone, uh, to atone means to pay for your sin. Someone's got to pay for your sin. Who pays for your sin? Many think, of course, you do that yourself. But substitutionary atonement is God paying for your sin, for you. 
And all the, all the talk in the Old Testament, all the sacrificial systems, all, those, all that stuff in Leviticus, all, all of that is about the death of Jesus. It points to Christ. God, in, in the sacrificial system in, in Leviticus, God was preparing the world for what he would do on the cross. And, about, and that's how we see the gospel in the Old Testament. You know, there was a time when I didn't think the sacrificial law had anything to do with Jesus. But now I know the Old Testament points to Jesus, including the sacrifice he would make. It, it starts in the first book, in the book of Genesis, in chapter 22, with Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. Abraham, the faithful one. You know, uh, now, growing up, um, I saw this as a moral story. You know, basically, it was, it was told that way that Abraham was faithful, you be faithful, right? That's a, that's a moral story. There's nothing terrible about that. I mean, or uh, Abraham was willing to sacrifice everything, so you sacrifice everything, right? Um, I, mean, I mean, I get it, but the, it's not the point. It's not the point of the text in Genesis 22 when Abraham is called to sacrifice Isaac. It's a foreshadowing of the gospel. It's an image for you and me. We are not Abraham. <laughs> I, well, I haven't known you very long, but I'm pretty sure you're not Abraham. I know I'm not. We're under the judgment of God, and we, we are worthy of death. We're bound in sin. If it were anyone, we're Isaac. We're on the altar of God. We're waiting the just punishment of God. And so when the knife is stopped, when God stops Abraham from slaying Isaac, a couple things are going on there. One is, I'm not that God. I do not call for that kind of sacrifice of your children. But when it is stopped, a provision is made by God. It's the Lamb of God caught in the thicket, a substitute for Isaac. That's substitutionary atonement. That theme starts in 22. It continues throughout Scripture so much so that when John the Baptist sees Jesus arrive at the Jordan River, he says, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And everyone, they didn't know what he, they couldn't imagine a man being the Lamb of God, but everyone knew what they were talking about. The entire Bible from Genesis 22 talks of the event Paul is talking about in verse 21. Christ became sin for us. He took our place. Substitutionary atonement. Christ paid for my sin in my place. Hey, how, how precious is that message to you, this, this gospel message? When I explain imputed righteousness or substitutionary atonement, does your, does your heart leap? Or is it more about lunch? Big yawn. Are you willing to give your life to it? This gospel message? Are you willing to die for it? You know, the call of Christ, according to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was come and die, and he's right. And I suspect many of you are, maybe most of you are. You're living your life, and it, it doesn't make any sense. Your life doesn't make any sense apart from Christ because you daily die. For Jesus. You're laying your life for the hope of the gospel. Are, are you willing to call others to die for it? Missionary servant? To follow Jesus in dangerous places? It's a bit harder, actually. <laughs> a lot harder. I was with a young Muslim woman named Asma. I was in her home. She was Iranian. She had told us she wanted to come to Jesus. She wanted to become a follower of Jesus. And I was there to explain to her and to make sure that it was genuine in, in her life and heart. And um, her one-year-old baby was on her knee. Her husband, who didn't speak a lick of English, was there. He was a nice man. He was atheological. He didn't care about Islam or Christianity or anything, but anyhow, he was listening as best he could. Walked through the gospel. She explained how she had come to faith. I said, Asma, 
you understand that back in Iran, there will be people who want to kill you when you are baptized. I know, she said, one-year-old on her lap, I know, Jesus is worth it. There's a little hitch in me, even, even in those moments when I'm almost like, oh my, oh my, Lord, <laughs> should she drink this cup, you know? But I had to resolve something long ago. It is better to know Jesus and die and meet him forgiven, even if it's just weeks on earth, than to not know Jesus and live a long life on earth, eking out what pleasure you might find here before you die and meet him in your sin. And I believe, along with asthma, it's worth it to call people to live for Jesus regardless of the consequences. Do you believe that? It's a part of our call to ambassadorship to make sure that we understand the preciousness of the work of God for us on the cross. So remember, four things. What marks Christ's ambassadors? Our motivation, our view of people, our grasp of our role, and our understanding of God's work. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would motiv be motivated out of our love for you and our fear of the Lord, our understanding that judgment is coming, our conviction of belief that you rose from the dead. We pray, Father, that you would shape our view of people with your eyes, that we would have our Father's eyes uh, and see people as divinely created, fallen, but potential new creations. We pray that you would give us a good grasp of our role as ambassadors to pronounce the message of God and give us a deep and abiding understanding of the message of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.